So first of all, lovely to have you here. And I wonder if you could describe the novel in your own words. I think the short answer is that it's about uh, sex and war. Uh, the longer answer is that I'm interested in the experience of being young in London today, mm-hmm. um, but more specifically the pressure on people who are in their 20s to be having a terrific time both socially and sexually. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore the truth behind that because I think people are often not having as good a time as they seem to be having. And the other thing that the book is about is the transition from soldier, sorry, from phys- <laughs> the transition from civilian to soldier. Um, very interested to watch a couple of friends entering the army and watching what that was like for them, that transition process. So it's partly set in Afghanistan and you follow one of my characters through his training to that point. And could you talk a bit about the title, which is Left of the Bang? Yeah, Left of the Bang itself is actually a military term. If you're teaching young soldiers about uh, IED explosions, you have a timeline and anything preparation or prevention that happens before the explosion is left to the bang on the timeline and then the aftermath is right of the bang. And do you think, how did the title, did the title come before the novel? No, um, the title took a very long time to come actually. I always had the shape for it. It was called Before the Bang for mm-hmm. a really long time because I, I had this, this shape, this sort of sense of an explosion and the build-up to an explosion and the suspense before that mm-hmm. sort of held breath moment. Um, and also the idea of dummy explosions. What happens if you expect something to go off and then it doesn't go off? So that template, that pattern was always there. But I didn't know the military term. Um, and then by great good luck, yeah. there was a military term that fitted and it was a very, very good day. That's been so exciting <laughs> Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. I was on holiday with a group of friends, actually. And, yeah, a friend of mine who is in the military, um, I was just saying, I'm desperate, I can't think of a title. And this is, this is the kind of feeling I want. And he thought for about two seconds, he goes... Oh, you mean left of the bang? <laughs> so good. It. And I wonder whether, because I thought a lot about the bangs when I was reading the novel, and obviously the title makes you look for the bang. And there's a fantastic moment in the first chapter which ends with the sort of, you know, the sense that the bang will come soon. But actually the bang that you set up in the first chapter, I think we can do a spoiler there, doesn't really necessarily come or doesn't become the bang that the whole novel waits for. And throughout, it feels like there are all of these... There's another scene very soon afterwards where there are two characters on the tube waiting for a bomb to go off, which doesn't go off. Yes. And I feel like there's a sense of anticlimax slightly going on there. And do you think that actually, is there one bang in the novel that you are... that the whole thing is building up to? I suppose if you wanted to find one bang... There is one there is, bang. there is one... There's, yes, and there's another bang that I think blows the characters in the relations that we know them apart. But I don't, I, although I was always heading for that moment of crisis, I don't think that it's necessarily, it's, it's not necessary to say that that's the bang that the whole novel waits yeah. for. It was, it was really more of a sort of pattern. Um, Do you think there's something going on where actually the first, so the first chapter shows Tam catching her father in the middle of a passionate embrace with someone who's not her mother. Yes. And in some ways, that's a crisis point that the whole novel is then to the right of. Yeah, I've had that said to me before, actually, that the whole novel is is to the right of the bang, happening in aftermath. And I don't mind that idea at all either. And Um, it's interesting, isn't it, thinking about how people are so shaped by these crucial moments. And I guess... I also wanted to ask you about whether you'd say it was a coming-of-age novel. 
in terms of being about the sort of preparation for life. Because all of these characters are actually preparing for things, it feels like, doesn't it? Yes, I think it probably is a coming-of-age novel in, in a rather depressing way, a sort of <laughs> learning-your-lesson novel. Yeah. Um, not that I think any of my characters need to be taught a lesson, but I think lessons are certainly learned nonetheless. And obviously you are yourself very young to be a writer. We're very young for writers and our list. And how much of it is based on your real life experience? Myself and my friends? Mm -hmm. um, Large parts, Mm -hmm. I would say. A lot of it's observation as well. Are you worried about it being coming out? (laughs) No, I don't think I am, actually. Um, I think that... There's only maybe one person in it who's recognisable, mm-hmm. and she's a very minor character. <laughs> so I think everything else is sufficiently dressed, and people have been really kind and generous with their information and their time, and they've all read it. So I think I'm okay. And no one's pissed off yet. No, not yet. <laughs> I think one of the maybe great that's naive. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the great achievements of the novel is the believability of the characters. Thank you. I felt like I knew. <laughs> Thought maybe you'd met all my friends. <laughs> But how did you, in terms of writing process, do you listen to people talk on the bus? Because the dialogue is fantastic. Was that a struggle to really nail down how people talk? Um, Yeah, lots of listening on the bus, lots of listening at parties. Um, I think that that's something I really enjoy writing, is dialogue. But Mm -hmm. I have to say it was hugely improved in the editing process um, with you and with Ollie Rouse. Uh, Just snipping here and there, you actually need less stylization than you think to mm-hmm. show people speaking realistically that was a real lesson for me yeah we um and er uh, all the time in natural speech and you only need one um per page to show people umming and erring that's something i've definitely learned yeah, i'm always tempted to have all the ums <laughs> and what inspired you to write the novel in the first place i think probably the thing that came first was my fascination with that transition process from civilian to soldier mm-hmm. i thought here's somebody here are people who are doing really extraordinary things for modern life they're having to think about right and wrong life and death in a way that average people don't have to i mean most of us just get to not think about that until like major crises in our lives these days uh, there are a few professions you have the army and you have doctors hospital world nurses Uh, where you do have to think about morality and life and death on an almost daily basis. And the interface between that very heady uh, life that you live in those worlds where you form intense friendships very quickly and you're really living on the edge, to use a cliche, that sort of interface between that world and the sort of trivial world of the pub where we all kind of meet up in the evenings really interested me. To have those people coming back out of those Mm -hmm. worlds and, and trying to integrate with with normal life. And were you worried about what um, the juxtaposition of the pub and the war, for instance, does for your other characters? Because I certainly found when reading it that you look at... So there's one character who's about to go off to Afghanistan and then there's another character who's having a panic attack about what she's going to eat for dinner. And there's a weird um, perspective cast on the the London-centric sections, obviously. Yes. By having this life and death thing but as a reader there's an interesting thing going on where you're like I really care what she's gonna have for dinner <laughs> so you know I wonder whether it's dangerous to juxtapose the two together and whether you're worried about that I'm very glad you cared um, <laughs> I really cared that was something I worried about I worried that um that was my biggest worry while writing it I think that what goes on in middle class London is fairly unimportant in the scheme of things 
And it is, and it isn't, because yeah. at the same time, everything's important, everything matters to the individual. Um, I don't mind if there is a contrast, and I think I'm just going to have to hope that, that people like you end up caring. <laughs> and um, I also wanted to ask you about sex and sex in the novel. It's another of the novel's great achievements. It's how well you wrote about sex, and specifically bad sex. I was going through the novel again yesterday and remembering the one-night stand between two characters in an IKEA-filled bedroom. Yes. There's a moment where she lifts up her bejeweled thong and strokes her thigh seductively while also massaging (laughs) him with her verrucaed toe. Um, To write passages like that must have been quite frightening. Or I wonder how you got the kind of nerve up to write like that. Well, I felt like I was writing in real isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I enjoyed writing the book a lot once I got into it, but I didn't necessarily think anybody else was going to see it, mm-hmm. and that helped hugely. Um, once it got to the point where I'd finished it and I knew there was a possibility of family members reading it, then then I was more worried by... Yeah. Are there any writers that have inspired you? in their writing about sex. Oh, definitely. I think there's some really good, really good writers out there. Martin Amos's The Rachel Papers was an early novel for me that I just thought, yes, you've got to tell the truth about this. It's so funny and important. It's not central to your life, but it's a big part of your life and it rarely gets written about honestly. So Mm -hmm. I hugely admire him for that. Jonathan Franzen, I think, one of his strengths is is writing about sex. I think he's really clear-sighted. Uh, later Zadie Smith in On Beauty. She doesn't write much about it, but when she does, it's bang on the money. Large uh, women having sex. She does so yeah, well in On Beauty. absolutely brilliant. Nicholson Baker, another person who gets my vote for writing about sex. Vox is a brilliant novel about <laughs> fantasy and masturbation, which also doesn't often get into literature. So, yeah, lots of people. And your characters are quite shaped by their sexual lives, as I think we probably all are, really. And did you feel it was important to centralize that you said you've been you were sort of inspired by the sexual lives not being as good as necessarily they seem to be and I wonder whether I mean I'm sure that you will be compared to Lena Dunham in that way but she obviously presents bad sex in her tv show yes and do you think there's a difference in writing about it and watching it on presenting it on screen feels to me much braver to film it than to write it yeah the brilliant thing about writing is that it's only ever between two people you've written it down and then the reader reads it and the reader's totally in in private oh but there are some words i think that you (laughs) could you know if you'd included some words they wouldn't (laughs) speaking as an editor we never had to edit your sex scenes (laughs) fine And I wonder also, a lot. you've had some fantastic quotes already from other writers. William Boyd called it a remarkably compelling and shrewd look at the way we live now. And Gavin Corbett thinks it's a definitive novel of a generation of Londoners. Um, both of those quotes kind of position it as a state of the age novel and a sense that it's about a generation of, and how we live now. And did you think you could have written it about a different time? How does the political situation in this city shape your plot? Uh, very interesting question. Lovely quotes from Will Boyd and Gavin Corbett. Um, I actually didn't set out to write 
a State of the Times novel mm -hmm. at all. And people read it. My mother read it actually early on and said, oh my goodness, it's all about how you live now. I had no idea it was like this. Yeah. And I, re I realised then that that had sort of got in there anyway. I think that there is... We talk about a lost generation and it sounds quite dramatic, but I did watch large swathes of my peers leaving university and they seemed to fall broadly into two categories. Either people went off and got really serious, highly paid, long-hour jobs working as management consultants or bankers or lawyers, or they drifted for a year or two or three and thought, who am I, what am I going to do? And that was another contrast that interested me. If you wanted to make it in any industry that wasn't well-established like medicine, law, banking uh it seems to me that it's now particularly difficult to do that mm -hmm. people whose parents live in london and were able to support themselves through unpaid internships by living at home had a kind of slight head start but it's still a strange time and i think that people often look 10 20 years behind them and, and think that it looked like it went much more smoothly back then so yeah. i wouldn't say there's like widespread discontent i think everybody is having a good enough time but a slightly confused and unexpected time and do you think if your characters had been thrust into you know they were great they were 20 having their 20s in the 80s maybe some of the problems that they face and the kind of there's a character leah who's not the heroine but she's so tormented by the world she lives in yes and there's an anxiety through the novel, I think, about what we're supposed to be doing and what we're supposed to be enjoying that feels to me very contemporary. But I wonder whether you could... Could it have happened in another city? It's a very London-centric novel when you're not in Afghanistan or on a school trip or Cornwall. But how much of that... There's a scent, you know, you're on the tube. I felt very hemmed in by the places. There's a claustrophobia there which reminded yes. me of other London novels like... Patrick Hamilton and people like that and how much of it is a kind of in some ways it's a love song to London too you know the streets so well can you imagine writing it about characters in Paris or no I really don't think I can I think it's I think it yeah. is definitely a London novel and you spent some time in Oxford still do you spend time in Oxford yeah I'm there once a week um, do you ever think about doing days. it in Oxford I wrote a first novel actually that really? I never sent out and that was set in Oxford and then transplanted to Bristol because I didn't want to have written an Oxford novel. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit wary of Oxford. Um, maybe one day, but not for a while. Is it important for you to write what you know? <sighs> yes. I hope in the future to be braver about settings, to be able to... Writing the Afghanistan section was mm. a leap that I was frightened about making. I had a, a lot of help from people who'd been out there and were very kind with their information. But once I'd done that and you you feel that actually with a bit of imagination you can leave London yeah. or Oxford, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I hope to be able to, to take things further afield. I think you're always writing about what you know in terms of people. but And did you... So you've obviously done a lot of research into the Afghanistan section. Did you do any research for the London section? Did you have to go to Infernos and be yourself <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think I've I, I didn't I didn't I didn't actually go to Infernos for that. <laughs> I think I've seen enough. Yeah. But it's very um, plotted out the journeys they take. 
And did you have to, I mean, I wonder whether you're on Google Maps at all. Oh, God, yeah, I'm on Google Maps, I'm on train timetables, to an obsessive and pointless degree, actually. I kind of actually mapped out everyone's house and kind of where the loo was. And In early drafts, it was all in there, and it was incredibly boring. And I had two very good friends who are also writing, and we get together about once every two months, and we read what everyone else has written. And my problem was always just, like, stop boring the pants off us, take it all out. And how long did it take you to write the novel? Three years, I think, from start to from start to proper finish. And did you, how did it work in terms of, did you get an agent as soon as you started, or you wrote the novel first? Uh, no, I was very lucky with that, actually. I'd been writing for Arate, which is the magazine I work for in Oxford, mm-hmm. and I'd done a piece of sort of reportage for them. Um, by chance, it was on the army, um, about actually the education that you receive at Soundhurst, mainly, and the passing out parade, and the, the actual point of transition. Uh, and Peter Strauss... Uh, who's an agent with RCW, got in touch and said, are you writing anything? And I was at the time. I was writing a novel that turned out to be the one that just stayed as a Word document. And he said, show it to me when you're ready. So I always had the very nice feeling that once I was done, if I was happy with it, there was somebody I could send it to who would read it sympathetically. Oh, it was terrific. It was a real boon. And you... When you're not writing novels, you write a lot of book reviews. Yes. How does it feel to be exposing yourself on the other side now? I think it's my turn, and <laughs> fair enough. Um, yeah. Did it make it harder to write that, having subjected, you know, you know what reviewers are going to pick up on? Did that in any way sort of cramp your style? Um, I wasn't doing much reviewing until quite late on in the um, writing process, so... No, is the straight answer, and I hope that it, in the future that it won't. Um, I think it actually helps writing the reviews because when you're writing a review, you've got a very tight deadline and you've got 800 words maybe, maybe less, mm-hmm. and you have to think really hard about how you want to use those words, and it, it loosens you up in a way. When I go back to writing fiction, having written the review, it's somehow easier. I found it really helpful. And are you working on a second novel? I am just beginning to. I'm doing more research for this one because it is definitely not set in London. I'm going to be setting it in the 19th century in America. So lots of reading required, which is really pleasurable. And maybe a research trip. Yeah, maybe a research trip. Exactly. I hope so. There's a moment in Left at the Bank where, at the end, where you kind of put your characters to bed or you flash forward into their futures. And I wondered whether you ever thought about writing a sequel given that this is so much left of the bang, whether there might have been a right of the bang carrying on the characters' lives. I have never thought about that, actually, although um, I like the characters, most of them, um, so <laughs> it would probably be a pre- pleasurable thing to write. I think I'm done with them, but mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to f- at least let people know what happened a little bit in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm always quite frustrated, um, not always, but very often, when a book ends and you think, but what happened later? Obviously, the Victorians are very good at doing that, at kind of, like, scrolling forwards 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. I also wanted to talk to you about honesty and judgment in the novel, because you present some... You cut through kind of social surfaces very well, I think, so that even if it's a dinner party or some sort of quite troubling sexual perversion or just lies and family life, and it seems... There are moments where you manage to present these things without any kind of narrative judgment. There's a great sort of detachment which seems crucial. Good, that's lovely to hear, thank you. But was that in any way difficult? There, I don't want to ruin anything here with the story, but there are characters that 
as a reader, you love and you almost love after you've found out quite worrying things about them. That is really very nice to hear indeed. That was something I was worried about all the time while I was writing it. I was the character that you're thinking of in particular. I was at great pains to make him likable. Um, that was a point of... I wouldn't even want to use the word tension, but that interface, again, between how who you are as a person and the hand that gets dealt to you and how you deal with that. It's quite difficult to talk about yeah. it without giving <laughs> things away. I needed I needed him to be likeable, mm -hmm. um, and that was a really, really important part of the story for me. But obviously... But he was a, a good reader, man, basically. Yeah. But as a reader, we don't know his dark secret until three quarters of the way through. I don't think he does either. I mean, that's that's yeah. the other thing. It really is an awakening for him. But you as the writer must have known it from the start. Yes. And was it hard not to slightly skew? There must have been an effort there not to, because he is in no way a villain or a baddie. Yes, um, there was an effort there. And if... It, I think maybe I was a bit too blasé about it at one point. I think I put in a kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink early on and it was just sort of, it went. Um, no, you can't be fooling around like that. He had to be, you, ha you had to be. Um, and are there any writers that inspired you in that, in terms of having characters that surprise the reader so much? Because your characters are so full and three-dimensional and familiar and you feel that you know them so well that then the betrayal... I mean, the amazing thing is... I feel like we're going to give something away here. <laughs> we won't. But the amazing <laughs> thing is, is that when it happens, the particular, that bang, you're not surprised. So maybe it's built on you always knowing it. Maybe we know from the start that there's something there. But, I mean, in terms of that, was there research that went into that kind of sexual perversion? And um, It's in the news a lot mm -hmm. so just keeping my ears open um, and again difficult to talk about <laughs> yeah I know we're going to stop yeah. let's move on <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about genre which is obviously an unnecessary question but there's something interesting in your novel in that it's definitely satirical I'd say brilliant I'm again really pleased you can hear that <laughs> something else I was worried about and I've always thought about Vanity Fair when reading your novel in that I think that the war lying on the side of this sort of social savagery that goes on beside, yeah. alongside it. And in that novel and in your novel, there's a sort of seriousness and intensely sharp observation that becomes almost satire. But I also wanted to talk to you about tragedy and comedy because they seem to lie alongside each other very close in your novel. And it is deeply sad, I think. Yeah, that surprised me as well. I didn't realise how sad a book I was writing <laughs> until I'd finished it. It was meant to be serious but quite good fun all the way along. I didn't realise how sad it, it was until I'd watched it all play out at the end. You know what's going to happen. Well, I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew where I was heading, but in the writing it, out at the end when you actually have to think about how these people are feeling and, and what it does to them um, yeah it became a very sad book and was it hard to judge when a joke was appropriate because and when you're writing it did you know how funny the funny bits were going to be um, I'm really 
I'm very, very pleased they are funny. I was, by the time I'd finished, I was, um, actually, no, not by the time I'd finished. After a few people had read it and said to me, this is such a sad book, I thought, oh my God, is the comedy even in there anymore? Um, so I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's come through. I worried I was being too nasty sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then there were days when I'd worry that it wouldn't sound satirical at all and everybody would think I was advocating we all go and live in Holland Park. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I would actually like to ask you about the privilege of the novel too. Yes. Because that is something that's sort of, you come away with a sense that this is a very privileged world of characters that you're dealing with. Again, you know, Lena Dunham's been accused of only showing privileged lives. And I wonder whether that was something you worried about. I did worry about it. I do worry about it. Um, Not for myself. I feel no um, regret having written about this particular slice of life because Mm -hmm. they're people. Stuff happens to them. They get their hearts broken. Things fuck up. And and that is... um, (laughs) interesting and important no matter who it's happening to I think I don't think there's a particular onus or duty to represent a balanced view of society in any work of art and I think that Lena Dunham didn't deserve any of the criticism she came in for there I think she'd done a brilliant brave job with that series Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that it doesn't put people off I can imagine that it might do because it is a very small slice of social world. Uh, London itself is a restricted, privileged circle, and then I'm looking at a, a, an even more privileged circle within that, I think. But you write what you see, and... I mean, for me, the, 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 one of the, there are so many things that make the novel, but there's, there's a skewering and a satiring of that world that, you know, as you say, is quite nasty at points. There is no sympathy with the kind of extreme privilege. The, nar- the, the As a narrator, you don't give, you've got no time for that. Are there any writers that particularly inspired you? While I was writing it, I would think, first of all, I'd have to say um, the 19th century. I mm-hmm. think it's actually quite a Victorian novel. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's Middlemarch. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, George Eliot, certainly. I actually, <coughs> I really wanted to have a more authorial narrative voice. I wanted to be able to kind of be telling the reader about life, the universe and everything. Um, but I was a bit too scared because you don't see it very much in modern fiction and I didn't have any modern templates to work from and I was very much at a point where I, I needed, I felt like I needed a template. And so I would very nervously try to throw in a sort of authorial judgment maybe once every kind of three or four pages and I didn't do it from the very beginning and you could tell I was sort of scared when you read it and I think if you want to to do the George Eliot thing you have to come out sort of racing from mm-hmm. chapter one reader I undertake to show you with this drop of ink from the tip of my you have to just go in and do it and I didn't so that was a uh, that was definitely a, a model that I I used and then shied away from but the idea that you can be looking at what several different people in a room think at any one time, that complexity I really wanted. And Tolstoy's a great model for that. He's really good at hopping between heads. So I would often kind of have War and Peace or Anna Karenina, and Anna Karenina open and just flip through and, and check it out. Zadie Smith always, I think she's fantastic. Um, and yeah, her books are very well thumbed by my desk. Interesting. And did you give it to anyone to read as you went along? Yeah, I had this writing group, these these two friends who are also writing, and I couldn't have done it without that. And mostly it was very practical stuff, like what on earth is going on? I don't even know where your characters are at the moment, just very basic stuff. Like, we've been in this cafe for five pages. <laughs> um, you know when you're boring someone, and that's invaluable. 
So they would read it. We'd get together and talk about it once every two months, I think. And did you write you did you write as a full time pursuit or you were always working at Arete? Always working at Arete and then eventually reviewing as well. Um I think full time Yeah, well, that'd be lovely, but I think probably would work best if you if you could ever find a life where this worked where you'd have two weeks of full-time employment and then two weeks of writing and just immerse yourself for two weeks and then come out of it actually leaving it is always helpful and coming back to it with a fresh head do you find it quite lonely writing not when you're actually writing and it's going well then it's lovely um but when you're walking around your bedroom drinking cold coffee and like really not sure where you're going next that bit's lonely i think and this is a question that Morwenna always asks at the end of the interviews, which is, if you're on a desert island, which books would you take with you? One book? We'll add one book, Morwenna? One. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um. <laughs> one book. It would have to be Henry James. And I think it's going to be a toss-up between Portrait of a Lady and Wings of the Dove. Great choices. Thanks so much, Claire.